God for you to come to this class this morning. Ah, your mother is in your ear. I'm going to ask my good friend Steve Stocker to pray for us. And Steve, and I think we can all join in this, I would like you particularly to pray for uh, Rich in his important role with the school board and all that's going on in Canton. And I, I told Rich that I know we're all praying for him personally, but Steve, if you wouldn't mind praying for our class and also for Rich and his, uh, his important role that he has with the city and the school I'll board. I'll find out as soon as Greg's done. Okay. Heavenly Father, this is the day that you've made and we rejoice, dear Lord, in it and in this opportunity to join together to study your word. Bless Greg as he leads us. Open our hearts and our spirits, dear Lord, to his teaching and to your leading. We do pray, dear Lord, as uh, suggested for those members of the Board of Education or those people in the community that are right now at, uh, at loggerheads, dear Lord, that need to come together in some way. We pray that you would be a part of all of those discussions and considerations for all people, not just the board members, but for all that are involved. Dear Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you provided to us that we might be here today, free of any fear and able to worship you on this, this day. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. So how did you know it was the will of God for you to come to class today? Because who said so? Because the wife said so, and somebody's mother said so. And so we listen to people, do we? Occasionally. Bible particularly says uh, in Hebrews we're not supposed to forsake the gathering of the together, the assembling together and so that's what we do on a Lord's Day morning we used to do it on a Lord's Day evening too, we get a chance today at least in the Lord's Day afternoon to come for a wonderful concert today um, but yeah so some of that is maybe we, we get the will of God by all of these things that we've already talked about in, in so many ways. The first couple weeks, that, that sheet, by the way, there's sheets of paper here. If you have missed the first couple of weeks and you'd like to catch up, or you missed any of the weeks, and then there's a new one for today as well. Yeah? But I'm not sure if I stayed home that I would be going against Ah, why is that? I gotta tie my shoe, I think. Is that on, Rich? Is that it? Okay. So, so I don't know yet. I don't. 
what I do know is I don't think I've surrendered every little thing. So if I'm going to go home and make cookies to take to my brand new neighbors that just moved in last night, is that because God is willing me to do that? I didn't even ask. <laughs> and she hands the microphone to me like I'm supposed to, to figure out whether she's supposed to take cookies to somebody or not. Back behind you. I think that you can say it's God's will when you, whenever you're pursuing good. So this is what we would consider a good thing, and making cookies for your neighbors a good thing. That's that's God's will. I don't think we have to sit down and pray, pray about every whether we go to the bathroom or not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what else is going on in your mind on this? There's the concept of the holy habit. Okay, the holy habit. faith through the ages and the, and the uh, practices, the devotional practices, some of which go on in this room in ways it would take the rest of the day to describe. But those practices, you know, are thought of as being part of God's will. So the, the habit of coming to Sunday school or any act of fellowship with other believers has to be thought of as God's will. Now, does everything that gets said in a setting like this, is that really part of God's will? That's not for us to always understand or, dis or determine. We, it would be our prayer that that would be true. But I think you bring up a, a, an exceptional point, and this comes out of the, the Reformation, and particularly Reformed faith, Calvin, Knox, Luther, and others would talk about the holy habits, and they would talk very significantly about how we learn from one another, and that this is all driven by our faith. And obviously, uh, for those of you that know me, I've, I've had a, a long-time association with the evangelical friends, the old Quakers. And the Quakers' theology is written on about nine sheets of paper, just half sheets of paper at that. And that's their entire theology. Now think about John Calvin <laughs> and his institutes. And I, I doubt anybody in here really has read the entire thing. Dave, have you read, have you read the entire thing? Okay. Um, but, but the friends have reams of testimonies of the saints that have gone on through the centuries passing on their experience and their insights into the will of God in the various things that we struggle with every day. And, and that is just fascinating. One of the old Celtic prayers was something to the extent of, Lord, may I recognize the well-worn paths of the pilgrims who have passed before me, gone before me. And I think that's so key for us to understand that we can learn from one another. And this is one of the problems with our family breakdown today, is it not? That there's nothing being passed on in the way that it once was. And sometimes we know the will of God because we know that somebody's mother has passed on to us. These things are holy habits. These things are very positive. I... 
I want to take with that question, I want to get us just thinking as we start out, but I want us to maybe strip away some of the mystique, like the will of God is, is really unknowable or very hard to come by. Sometimes it's easier than we think because it's right in front of us. It's been given to us by so many people as we've watched their lives, as they have just blessed us in so many ways. Um, I'm going to embarrass Jack and Phyllis because they have, for me, for years, been people that have given me wisdom, given me guidance, given me counsel, and correction. <laughs> those times in which I needed those kinds of things, and I have learned from them as I've watched them experience hard decisions to make, and how do you make that? And I want to thank you for what you've meant to me in my life, and my wife, and, and what you've meant to this community and to this church and there's others around here as well that are that way and who have they been who are those people that have shown us the way i think sometimes we can see the will of god by watching godly people in action and it's that way it's a little easier than sometimes we make it out to be today I wanted us to uh, to recap a few things, particularly I know some people, this is maybe your first week and, and it, you've missed a couple. And the sheets of paper up here again if you have not gotten those. But if you remember those, those seven overarching principles that we talked about in knowing the will of God. And I'd like to add an eighth point to it. And there's a couple of you that have, have mentioned this and we were going to talk about it a little more today which is one of the reasons that we've left it off. Uh, but the eighth point of those overarching principles would be coming out of Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And part of what, I was, what I've said the last few weeks is picture yourself, if you would, from the, you, you are Peter, you are James, you are the disciples. You're the half-brother of Jesus that James, not the disciple James, but the half-brother. Both of these Jameses are in this upper room. And all these people are there, and they're trying to figure out how do they do this thing we call faith. We have the New Testament. They didn't. How do they figure, how do they figure out the will of God? Well, they had the Old Testament, or as John Guy would say, the Older Testament. <laughs> and certainly, they had some biblical references of which we can see in the book of Acts that they kept going back to, which goes back to those first couple points of those o overarching principles, and that is we have to know the Bible. We have to know the Bible. But God's will comes through, the eighth point, the Christian community. Knowing God's will is known in community. That God speaks to us through the community. It speaks through us every week in the pastor's message, in the scripture that we read and meditate, in the hymns and other music that we sing that proclaim the gospel, in the prayers that we pray, all of this in the public setting, but then also in the, in the more private setting, 
of small groups. And if, and if we're not part of a small group, we need to be in a small group. We need to be part of Christian education. We need to be partaking in men's groups, women's groups, couples groups, singles groups. We need to be involved where the Bible is actually talked about. But through community. And I'd point out in verse 14, if you've got, the, got that first chapter of Acts with you, notice that this included women. Very profound in that Jewish male-dominated culture that women were part of this group. And I think that, that this is something that is often, at least in that generation, lacking. And even in our generation, we want to separate into men's and women's groups all the time and make it a gender issue. And re- in reality, it's neither, but we need each other we need to listen to one another. My wife says, yeah, well, you should listen to me more. But um, we, we need each other. And so I want to make that, that point today that we will know God's will by knowing and being part of a Christian community. And then I want to reemphasize this, these couple points that we talked about last week particularly, and that has to do with if we want to know God's will, we've got to know the Bible and how we interpret the Bible. And so I want to reemphasize that biblical interpretation that we talked about, hermeneutics. And I'm not going to go through everything. Uh, I don't want to treat this like a, like a seminary class that I'm used to teaching. But if you are struggling with, does the Bible say this, but it also says this, Corey Tinboom, you know who I'm talking about? The, the Dutch woman who was caught in the Nazi uprising protecting Jews in her home. Do I lie and protect these Jews, keep them from the Nazis, or do I tell the truth and then they go to their death? Now there's two biblical principles at work there, isn't there? Honesty, truth, and sanctity of life. And so it, when, those, when those two come together, what do you do? And that sheet that I gave you on how to interpret the Bible can help us in those kinds of areas to know how to get to some of those thorny ethical issues. And I just want to bring these points out to you about that. It's exegesis, not eisegesis. Exegesis means what we get out of the Bible. When we look at the exit sign, it means we're going out. And exo, Jesus, means out of the Scripture. But too often we go eisegesis, we want to put into the Scriptures what we want the Scriptures to say. Because this is what God should have said. And, and you, you're in agreement with that until I get onto your issue that that the Bible says something different than what you want it to say. And I'm the same way. So I think that we have to be careful that we just don't honey dip where we just throw a scripture open and say, oh, that's the one. No, we've got to take the Bible. And you know what I mean by honey dipping, right? God, what do I do with my life? And we just open it up and he says, Judas went and hung himself. Oh, well, wait a minute. Um, I'm going to go to another one. So you go and do likewise. Oh, well, wait a minute. And now we're on a third honey dipping. And what you do, do quickly. Well, 
I think we can get into a big trouble when we're not really grabbing hold of the scriptures appropriately. But that is eisegesis. I'm going to go into the Bible because I already know what God's supposed to say, so I'm just going to try to find the verse that proves what I think God is trying to say, as opposed to saying, what is God saying to me out of the Bible? Let's get Terry that, and I'm going to, I'm going to say that here's a couple thoughts about that. Let the Scriptures lead you rather than you leading the Scriptures. And let the Scripture master you. Don't you master the Scriptures. That's, the, that's what we need to get at for a good biblical interpretation. And part of what I think our difficulty is is that there are places in Scripture that really seem diametrically opposed. Like you can read it and say, well, there's really a conflict in that. And our second, or the Scripture this morning from Corinthians talks about um, if you're married, act as if you're not married. If you're mourning, act as if you're not mourning. If you go out shopping, pretend that you don't own anything. And, and so we read that and we say, okay, what does that mean? And he says, well, I don't need to be anxious. And if you're not married, then you really seek God first. Well, then there's another scripture that we just read that says, um, husbands don't withhold yourselves from your wives. Wives don't withhold yourselves from your husbands. So you read both of these and you go, okay, if I'm supposed to act like I'm not married, so what does this mean? And I think that there's other cases, but these are ones we just have studied in our weekly um, lectionary. So that's one of our questions is, what about when it seems opposed? And that's what, that's, that sheet and what we talked a little bit about last week of taking and looking at these scriptures and helping us to know which one is applicable in s certain situations. And, one, and, and in this situation, exactly what you're talking about is the scripture has two words for time or season. You remember what they are, Jack? Kairos and Kronos. So chronological is what the clock gives us, and Kairos is a time, like a season. There's a season to plant, there's a season to reap. And so there is a season in which we're supposed to withdraw from one another in, in a marital situation, but that's for a season. It's not for all times. There's, that's where these different kinds, where we need to take the whole Bible rather than just an individual verse. That individual verse may be good for a particular time, but it's not necessarily good for the whole time. And this is the difference in when we talk about the difference between Islam and Christianity when it comes to some of the warfare. People say, well, there's warfare in the Bible, and therefore, in the Old Testament, look, you know, Christians and Jews believe in this, but it was for a specific time, for a specific reason, for a specific thing as opposed to kill the infidel at any time, at all times. And there's a difference there between those two. And, the, and so we have to understand that just because there was an Old Testament given commandment to Israel to go in and do this for a specific time, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to go kill anybody at any time for random reasons. And we need to understand some of that biblical interpretation. I hope that we are maybe wetting an appetite for you to really want to go into the Bible more because the Bible has answers for these things, but it's not something that we just... I can carry the Word of God, which is amazing when you think about it, of how little there is. Jack or Randy or somebody, 
how big is the code of Ohio? Could you carry it in here? Oh, I like that. But I mean, could we actually carry the entire code in? You have a library for it, don't you? Yeah, and and so, and yet with with as much as this that you and I have never read, <laughs> we can get to every ethical dilemma and figure it out in the, from this one book. And that's what's so amazing about it. Any ethical de- decision, we can come to a conclusion because of the principles and the rules that are in here. Were you going to say something, Jerry? Yeah, I, I we, think We need to get you the... Back to your business about the four rules. You know, I think that, that uh, that's a very small sin to lie to the Germans and save a whole bunch of people. I think God had told her through the Holy Spirit she should protect them. And it was all, you know, and she did what was right. So she had to lie to the Germans. Too bad. <laughs> but we can't say that lying is, is not very clearly in the Bible condemned and said we're not supposed to have any part with it. And so, if we did, because if we do that, we're throwing out the Ten Commandments. And we, so it's not just as easy to say it's not that big a deal. And I don't hear you saying that. But I, but I, I do hear you saying, by comparison, but even there, we need other biblical rules and mandates, principles that can make sure, help us make sure that doing what she did was the right thing to do. Not just because it seems like it's the lesser of two evils. We need to know that that, that is an active, that is something active of God out of his word that gives us that because of the principle we established last week. And that is coming out of, of uh, Romans chapter 14. Whatever is not of faith is sin. It's sin not to act in faith. And so we have to make sure that the Scripture instructs us in such a way as to go and do those things. And I think we can do that, by the way. But I, I think we need to really understand that we can't just do it because it's the lesser of two evils, but that there is a biblical mandate and prescription for us to do that. Was there a hand back there? You're, she's, my wife is referring to Corey Tinboom's sister, and Corey Tinboom came to opposite perspectives on that. And I don't think that this goes back to, well, whatever is good for you, you do, and whatever is good for me, I do. That's, that's this postmodern that there's no ultimate authority. One of them was right, and one of them was wrong. One of them was following the scripture, and one was not. They had a, one of them had a misinterpretation of that. Go ahead. Well, the story about the sister was that when the Gestapo came in, they went, said, where, where are the people? Something to that effect. And she said, they're under the rug in the kitchen, which is where they were. There was a trap door there. But they, of course, thought that was ridiculous and didn't believe her. So she got away with saying the <laughs> truth. <laughs> God put a cloud in their heads or something, so they didn't believe her. And, and it's, it really is an amazing story of God's providence and protection 
in that situation. Of course, there were many others that weren't. We need, we need the mic. Just pass it around. Every time we've to told our children Santa Claus is coming tonight, we've told a lie. So should we all of a sudden say, my gosh, I've sinned and gone against God's will for doing that? And, and we do that, that type of thing all the time. So I mean, not a difficult one like we're talking about here of life and death, but those simple things. Well, exactly. And, and, and some people might think, well, that's not that significant. But passing on to children about integrity and honesty, all that kind of stuff is very important. But I think... What's your answer to that? So what, we, what I think we need to do is, when we, last week I, I handed out another sheet about logic. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on logic because it's way too boring for most of us. But one of the things on the, on a foul, one of the fallacies in logic is that fallacy of equivocation. Meaning, what do we mean by the word? And what do we mean by the word lie? Uh, and Randy, you'll, you'll appreciate this because you love basketball. And we say, this person has led the team in steals. And he's or she is rewarded on the basketball court if they steal the basketball. But if they go out into the community and steal, they go to jail. Well, they, at least they used to. I hope they still do sometimes. So, again, we have this, what is it? Why is it rewarded here and over there? Well, it's not only just that it's a different ethical format, but there's really no stealing in basketball. The basketball belongs to both teams. And so what do we mean by the word steal? We can fall into the fallacy of equivocation, by using the same word but having two completely different meanings of it. And in this case, I don't think that is a lie. I would say we fall into the fallacy of equivocation when we talk about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny and we say that's a lie when it's really not a lie. And what we're really doing is, is we're telling a, a fable, we're telling a story, we're, we're we're, we're entering into those kind of discussions with children. But I do think that we, at some point, that we talk that through with them and explain to them. So I think we gotta be careful, and, and that's why I gave out the sheet about logic, because sometimes it, it impacts how we interpret the Bible because we don't mean what the word really means, or that we have a poor definition. Just keep passing that back and forth along the row. You do talk loud, but we need you to talk louder. Okay. Uh, now you knocked it out of my mind. Uh, Lie and the equivocation. Oh, Santa Claus. At the same time, when we talked Santa Claus, we were teaching two-year-olds about Jesus' birthday is tonight. You know, so I don't think anybody loses on that deal. <laughs> it does go down here. Well, we're still on a review, and I want to move on to where we need to go today, but the, the review is to make sure the Scripture is in, in impacting us and informing us. And we talked about this concept last week, about know your mind, but don't have your mind made up. Know your mind, 
but don't have your mind made up. And that that is a key point to us as we begin to think about these things. And remember I talked about last week that Martin Luther said that um, I, I, I want to know the will of God. Help me as he stood before the people who were getting ready to kill him because they said he was a heretic. But he said, unless somebody could show me by evident reason or by the Holy Scriptures, here I stand. I can do no other. Help me, God. And so I really think that this is where we need to be when we come to these ethical decisions and when we come to about the will for our life. Lord, this is what I believe. This is my mind right now. But my mind is open to you changing my mind if through evident reason or through Holy Scripture I can see truth. And I think that's where we all need to be. And that goes back to this eisegesis, exegesis. If I already know what God has said and I've closed anything out of the equation from learning, then I'm going to go into the Bible and I'm going to find exactly what I think God should say as opposed to having a moldable heart and mind. And I think this is a crucial point for us to be at. So let's look at the sheet for today. And the sheet for today is knowing God's will for our lives in the specific ways that God makes us known for us that might help Terry with her cookie baking uh, uh, dilemma. But here is the foundation for me. God's will is righteousness. God's overarching will is righteousness, is obedience. That's what he is wanting from us. Not because he's some slave driver, but because he's a loving God who knows that that's what's best for us. So therefore, I want to study God's revealed will. You and I should want to study God's revealed will and then obey it. That's where we should be at this. Now again, the first point on top of the sheet there is that it begins with this personal relationship with Jesus. You can't know the will of God without knowing Jesus personally. You have to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And in Matthew 16, it talks about, and if you have your Bible, you want to look at these passages as we walk through them, that's great. He basically says, You've got to deny yourself and follow me. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. And you, are you going to gain the entire world but lose your soul? These are the questions that we have to first come to grips with. And again, as I said last week, if, if you're unsure of your relationship with God, talk to the pastoral staff here. Talk to the elders. I, I'd be willing to talk to anybody. This is where it starts. You can't know the will of God unless you know Jesus. And you have this relationship with him. And then, scriptures. That we know the will of God through knowing scriptures. The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, other didactic teachings. The thou shalt, thou shalt not. These things are very, these concepts are very important. So the principles that come out of the scripture like love, honesty, sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, private property, all these concepts come out of the scripture that gives us 
the basis for what we can begin to understand the will of God. Now, Jack, you brought up last week, how do do I vote this fall or in the primary? And how do I know the will of God for that? Does the Bible say I'm supposed to vote for Obama or whoever the Republicans end up with? That would be too easy. It would be too easy for God just to say, do that, do that, do that, do that. That's why this is not all that huge. Because what God really wants is a relationship with us. And he wants us, he wants our heart to be right. And so therefore, he doesn't just give us this, should I go do this or should I go do that? But he says, because I want relationship with you, and I want righteousness for you, let's talk about this. Let's dialogue about this. We would call that prayer. We would call that meditation. We would call that solitude. We would call that all that what I, I think Pastor Dave is leading us on in terms of what we are here in the city. What would you, again, say what we are here? Yeah, you're Pastor Dave as far as I know. Sacred space to do what? Exactly, that we have a sacred space here and hopefully we create our own in our homes or offices or whatever that we can actually go to to think about these concepts. But if we don't open ourselves up to Scripture, we can't find the will of God. And then the next thing is prayer. James, the first chapter, 5 and 6, he says, let the person who is lacking in wisdom, let him ask of God. And if we are lacking in our wisdom about what to do in terms of the will of God in our life, then we go to God. And he will provide that wisdom for us. We find the will of God in prayer. The third thing you have there is fasting. Fasting. Now, this is something that people really don't like any kind of Christian education about. I'm not interested in fasting. Forget this stuff. Well, let's let's talk about fasting. When I say to an athlete, you're fast, is that a good or a negative? It's usually good, right? Fasting means to get someplace quicker. Fasting also means that if I get something and I hold it fast, I've got it securely. These are the two concepts of the Christian fast. That we go to a place quicker. So we're looking for God's will. We're looking for God's will for our life or for to bake the cookies or not. I'm not sure that we should fast around cookies, but if we, fasting means that we stop something in order to do something else. That's the whole concept of the Sabbath. That we do six days of all of our normal work and then we have one day that we stop all of that. It's not that we stop doing everything, but it's that we Stop doing all this so we can add something else, so we can do something else, as we talked about last week. The Lord's Day 
is a f- to be a full day. Did you actually watch the football games last week, Jerry? Did I convince you? Okay, you sinned. We have a whole day. We have a whole day God gives us, not just an hour. It's not the Lord's hour. It's the Lord's day. That we are to be in spiritual renewal. And not that, that's, that we're only supposed to do it on, on the Lord's day. Fasting from something means that we stop doing something so that we can do something else. Now, typically what people do is they're going to give up a meal or they're going to fast for a whole day of food. But the purpose of giving up the food preparation, the consuming of the food, the cleanup after you've done all the stuff with the food, is so that you can spend that entire time in prayer and Bible study and meditation. So that you're going quicker to your spiritual desire. Going fast to where Jesus wants you to go. That's why we call it a fast. To get spiritually developed quicker. Because we strip away all that stuff that gets in the way of us going quicker to Jesus. And then, fast, once we've gotten there, we can hold fast to it. This is the Christian idea of fasting. That we get to the spiritual answer quicker and we can hold on to it more securely. And this has been for centuries that we have done this. Now people, we need the mic over here, people have saying, well, I can't give up food because of medical or dietary. And that's why I think the scripture that Terry was referring to, that there's other things that we refrain from. The chapter 7 that you were talking about in Romans, correct? About that we are fasting from the intimate relationships that a husband and wife might have. To give ourselves more to this. And maybe it is giving up TV. Maybe it is giving up something. This is the whole concept that we get into during Lent. That we give something up, not just to give it up, but to take on something else that God wants us to do so that we can grow spiritually. Well, you just answered my question oh. because I guess what, <laughs> what I was going to ask is so then you're saying that fasting, the way we, we all have um, interpreted it over the years, doesn't have to be food. It is often food, but right. it doesn't have to be food. It can so be it could be devoting your entire Sabbath day to being in prayer and whatever and stay away from the television or don't go shopping or as, as you're, you have followed over the years, don't go to a restaurant and make somebody else work. The, those things could all be considered fasting. Absolutely. What is it that, that you can give up and set aside so that you can more actively pursue Knowing the will of God. Anytime that we set aside an hour to join a Bible study, I know there's, the, there's many men in the, in the congregation that is it Thursday mornings that, that meet. And I know Jim led a, a Bible study this summer up at Lakeside for men once a week. And, and those guys get together and they fast for that hour or two of anything else. Turn their cell phones off, they're not answering whatever emails at work and they're fasting to get closer to Jesus. So even if it's just for an hour, we can do that. But we have refreshments. 
<laughs> but we do eat. Go ahead, and then we'll pass uh, well, it Well, recently we were visiting our son and, and daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law decided to go on what she calls a Daniel fast, when Daniel had just water and, and fruit and vegetables for 21 days. And the fasting of food did not give her any more time because she still had to cook for the rest of the family and clean up and all of that. But she also said that what she was doing was each day she was praying about a certain problem that she wanted to pray about. So it would seem to me that the fasting maybe kept her mind on what she wanted to pray about. And so in that way, it didn't give her more time, but it helped her focus, perhaps. And that, oh, that absolutely. was a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And so understand that fasting is the first step in the process, that we're giving something up so that we can go deeper into something else so that Jesus can speak to us about knowing his will for our lives. Well, and there's another component, too. And from Jonah today in the um, scripture, talks about the king in Nineveh who said, um, let's all fast, let's not eat anything, because then maybe God will see this and he will change his mind and not destroy us. And God saw the people coming together fasting and wore sackcloth and put ashes on, and he changed his mind. And so there's something about fasting also that God has said, I will listen. And it honors him. Right. And that's a good segue into, pass that on back if you would, in chapter 58 of Isaiah. Randy, you want to grab that and pass that back? And because Isaiah talks about why do you really fast? Well, on the way by, let me just say that I first time in my life read Isaiah 58 that you've got on the book. It's terrific. It speaks ex precisely to what we're talking about. I'd never been aware of this before. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's too long? Yeah. No, no. You scratched your head. I scratched my head. I was <laughs> checking that thing out Soul that Terry to was the talking man. about. And he thought I wanted the mic. But we got Isaiah 58 out of it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> We've got one back up here. Yeah, and... and Read 58 today. It's a longer chapter, but it does all, it speaks very clearly to this subject. I'm looking for an easy out. <laughs> uh, easy answer. How far off would I be if I'm overwhelmed by the sure passages in the Bible so that when I'm looking for the will of God to confront the entire Bible, uh, would be a daunting task for me. But if I am conversant with the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying in men's group, and the Beatitudes, and blessed is being having favor with God, and I am conversant with the parables where Jesus was talking about the kingdom, that if I rely on those aren't I a good ways along of knowing God's will for me so that I can have cliff notes with me in essence and uh, uh, maybe fill in with some of the other passages, but uh, isn't that, if not a good starting point, at least uh, uh, where we should be? Because I look at fasting and poor in spirit, emptying yourself of your worldly things. Fasting is concentrating on on uh, prayer it's 
that's what's meant, I believe, what's mm -hmm. meant by that. So what's your thoughts on that? I, I, I'd like to just carry that along with me. At some point we have to, we live in, in the in-between of here I am knowing a couple of verses and here it is knowing the whole Bible. And so how... I'm no guy. Right. And, and, and probably most of us will never be. I do think that what you said has much validity. And I, and I want to affirm that. I, I, I hear that and I, and I hear in your heart the right heart as well. This is important to me. And I want to be righteous. And I want to obey God. But do I have to know every single jot and tittle in the Bible to, to feel like that? That's, and I'm going to skip down to the last point here, and that, and that is to seek godly counsel. Because I think that that's what, where most of us are going to be at. I think the basics for life can be found in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and some of those didactic passages. That we are, there are certain things that we need to do and there are certain attitudes we need to have. And, I mean, the whole world, basically, whether they're Christian, Muslim, or, or atheistic, they think that love is important. They think that honesty is important. Now, they may not practice this all the time, but there are some general concepts that are shared across the board that are certainly biblical. But then there are those situations. Which of the sisters, of the Tin Boom sisters, was right? At that point, I don't have to necessarily become the expert in that, but I can go to the godly counsel in those times that I'm uncertain. So that I'm living most of my life with these holy habits of love and faith and honesty, etc., but when I'm coming on this situ one situation that I'm really concerned about, then maybe I need to do a little work. I need to take time to fast for a little while to find that answer so that I can go forward in faith. But that last one kind of short circuits that I have to know the whole Bible, but I can go to the people, the John Gibes of the world who do, that can really help me with that. Is that, is that helpful? You, f you feel okay about that? Yeah. But I'm not going to let you off the hook that you still have to do the work when you need to. But I heard that in your heart and your question, that you do want that. Go ahead and pick. Well, I, I, no, I, I, one of my commitments is so keep my mouth shut. So. Oh. <laughs> Pass it on back down here. Just let me highlight while that's being passed down. That Psalm 1 is a great one, that we're not to walk in a counsel of the ungodly, but to really seek out the wise counsel. And that Paul got counsel from Ananias right upon his conversion. And then in Galatians 2 and Acts 9, we see that Paul right away, even though he was steeped in the Old Testament and all the theology, he went to the elders and got godly wisdom. And I don't care who we are. Every single pastor needs to go and get godly counsel. Go ahead. John's question is, is a 2,000-year-old question. Mm, at least. And it's profound. And it's, it's, what do I really have to do? What do I really have to know? And that question was put to Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus, we know the law. 
we know the Ten Commandments and we know all the rest of the law and we do try to keep that law, but what's the greatest commandment? We all could recite what Jesus' answer was. Now, did that make it easier? Not really. Because if we love the na our neighbor as ourself, all of the Ten Commandments apply in spades, still. We wouldn't do anything against those, the law of God, God's righteous law, if we loved our neighbor as ourself. But it's still, a, it, it was Jesus' answer, and it's a pretty good template to put over our actions, and whether we want to debate what private property has to do with the Ten Commandments, we can debate that till way after the election. But if we love our neighbor as ourselves, that's a pretty good template to put in front of most of the dilemmas that we face in life. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's, a, that's very wise. I think it's a great way of looking at it. And, and see, so we can teach ourselves here. I mean, I can be a convener, but we're going to teach ourselves because there is a wisdom of the family of Christ here that we can teach one another. And I think that that's excellent. It, it, it's as simple as that, and yet it's, it's difficult as that, because then what does really loving my neighbor mean? And that's where we have to get more into the Scripture to find out in specific situations, what does it mean? And one of the things that I think is, is troubling for us in our day and age is, well, the, the word I would use is tolerance. A lot of times people say, well, Christians aren't very tolerant. They're not very accepting of other people's views. And yet, that statement in and of itself is not very tolerant or accepting of the Christian view. And I think that there's a difference between because some, some, I've, I've often been, uh, or at least sometimes I've been criticized, you sound so dogmatic about things. I am. I, I am dogmatic about things because I know my mind. I know what the scripture is saying. But my mind's not made up. And I want to dialogue with you about what it is that you think that I, where I'm off base because God may be using you to help me understand God's will. There is truth. Let's seek it together. I, I think I know it. I'm going to say it, what I think is true, but I'm open to God speaking to me. And maybe God's going to speak to me through you. And I need to be open to that. Well, I think God is very intolerant. He's very intolerant of sin. Uh, so why did you watch the football game last week? I, I, I asked for forgiveness before the game. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, and, and that's the other way I'd answer that, too, is that if, if, if I'm dogmatic, it's because the Bible is dogmatic, and I'm, I'm just trying to be obedient to the Bible. But my point is, if you're going to listen to God, you're going to be intolerant of sinful things and, and uh, people that break the law and the 
God's law and so forth. Yeah, we should be very intolerant of anybody that's going to abuse a child. There's no tolerance for that. Is that evil to not be tolerant? I think it's loving our neighbor to try to help that child who's being abused. And we can go to lots of examples. Let me get through a couple things here because dreams and visions are things uh, that are often misunderstood. But we do know that God speaks to us through these things. And in Genesis 37, 5, where Joseph goes to his brothers and said, I had this dream where all of you were bowing down to me. And then he gets into prison in chapter 40. And the two guys that were the Pharaoh's servants, he interprets their dreams. And in the next chapter, he interprets. And, and I'll, I'll never forget when I was in Egypt and I was part of a team that was writing a manual. And there were 12 of us from around the world that were writing this manual. And the pastor and you'll, you'll be happy to know this, of the United Presbyterian Church, which is the largest church, Protestant church in all the Middle East, about 10,000. Pastor Sama is leading this right in downtown Cairo, and we hit a roadblock in what we were trying to write. And, and I, I said, God, help us with this. That night I had a dream. And I went to Pastor Sama the next day and I said, I had a dream, but I don't understand it. He says, of course you had a dream. Of course I had a dream. What are you talking about? You're in Egypt. Have you not read your Old Testament? You tell me your dream and I will be Joseph. And I told him the dream and it was the answer to this impasse that we had come to. Twelve of the best minds in this area in the whole world. But this dream that I didn't even understand that Pastor Sama did know. And by the way, if we, if we could ever get Pastor Sama to come here, you would be amazed. He's brought, he and his wife are probably the closest people that I'll ever meet to somebody like uh, Mother Teresa. Um, surgeons, medical people that gave up their medical career to become the pastors of this church. Highly persecuted. Unbelievable. And a few days later, we had another impasse. And it was about how do we do evangelism in Egypt? How do we tell people and share the faith of Christ in Egypt when they're not allowed to? When it's, when it's politically, you go to jail to do it. And Pastor Sama pointed to me, says, you will understand this now. This is why, the way we do it. We train our people to go play soccer and basketball with the people. And we are not allowed to tell them about Jesus. We're not allowed to initiate any conversation. And so what we pray for is that Jesus will reveal themselves to our Muslim friends and atheistic friends in their dreams. And then they come to us because they know we're Christians and say, last night Jesus spoke to me in my dream. Can you tell me what it means? And he says that over 90% of the people that are coming to Christian faith in the Middle East, and they've planted some 200 churches through the Middle East, this one church has. That is how they're coming to Christ. God does speak through dreams, but we do need to be careful with them. We can't have some crazy dream and go out and act on that. It has to then be gritted back through the scripture and prayer and fasting and godly counsel. Help, but there is a dream, and there are visions. And the vision here, Peter had this vision of what was clean and unclean, and he changed the entire way of doing church. Now, we don't want anybody to have that kind of vision in this church, do we? 
We kind of like the way we're doing it, but maybe God's going to say, no, we've got to change, and there will be a vision that comes. And Paul had the vision of the Macedonian, and he had that vision that Ananias was going to come to him. Now, Ananias is the one that I have a question about. You want me to go talk to this guy who's thrown people in prison and killed people? And I, God, you want me to go talk to him? Talk about knowing the will of God. But Ananias is the one that got Paul moving in the right direction. All these visions, John's revelation, and Paul in front of King Agrippa saying, I had this vision. So there are ways, special ways, that God does reveal his will to us about these things that are so important in our lives. So that's a little bit of a grid work. If you want to know the will of God, these are the things that are going to help you, help me, to figure that out. On the very first week, I handed out something that I'd like, like to go a little bit with you, just as kind of a devotional th- thought. Acts chapter 27, if you'd ch- turn to Acts chapter 27 with me. And dark storms or bright promises is how I, I might entitle this, if it was a sermon. And Paul is starting his voyage to Rome. It was decided that they were to sail to Italy. And he talks a lot about what they're doing. They're they're basically sailing from Jerusalem on the far east of the Mediterranean Sea, and they're going up along the south coast of Turkey. It gives us all of these places. And they found in verse 6 there, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. And the centurion, we know, is... um, the guy who, that Paul was basically bound to, who was supposed to deliver him to Caesar. Remember, Paul has appealed to Caesar because he's been in prison for a couple years, and now he's taken his case to, to Caesar. And they sailed along, and they're going in between all these islands, trying to keep away from the winds and keep their, their uh, ship safe. And now in verse 9, now when much time had been spent... And sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, and that was the fast at the end of the year. So this was like September, October. No sailing is done, November. And this is the time of year that they are sailing. Verse 9, Paul advised them, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now, that is much different than what he says a few verses down below. He's saying that we're going to lose our lives on this. He is doing this because he has experience. He probably was one of the most experienced travelers, even of those who were sailing the ship. And he knew that this was not wise. It goes back to these holy habits. It goes back to these basic concepts we know that it's, it's, it's at the end of the season, and this is just not a wise thing to do. And he's just saying up with kind of human wisdom that has born out of his experience. We need to understand that that's part of how we know the will of God, even in our own human experience. But you can imagine, hey, we're the sailors. You're a prisoner, Right? So nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. How do we know the will of God? Sometimes 
a godly, experienced person says to us, I don't think this is wise for you to do. You want to know the will of God? Maybe listen to that person. Maybe God has given us already the will of God, and we're just not listening because we want something else. And there's some indication, that if you go and study this, that um, in verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, and the majority advised to set sail, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. Now, it's known that where they were, let's just say that the nightlife wasn't exactly all that cool, but Phoenix it was a pretty wild place. And so a lot of these guys on the ship are saying, you want me to spend all winter here? I can't get any of anything I want here. Over there, there's a lot. And you get the picture, right? And so they are, rather than listening to godly wisdom, they're following the wisdom of the world. And the wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, and they sailed close to Crete. So they thought, Paul didn't know what he's talking about. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose. Basically what we would call a northeaster. So that the, when the w- ship was caught, it could not head into the wind. They just had a single sail. They didn't have all the sailing apparatuses. They could only sail with the wind. Now they're having to sail in, into it rather than being blown by it. And it's not working. And we just let her go. The ship just went. And we ran under the shelter of the island called Clada. We secured the skiff with difficulty. Now you begin to understand that they're doing everything they can. Verse 19. Everything they can to save the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. When we come to these dark storms in our lives, there's a number of things. Sometimes they're not even of our own making. Paul's on this ship. Aristarchus is on this ship. These people are on this ship. They didn't have any choice. You've lost a job. Not of your choice. Someone has divorced you or your kid has turned their back on you or your business partner has... And it's not of your choice, but you're in that ship. And this is a dark storm. Someone has done something wrong to you or made a decision about your company or your whatever. You're on that ship. How do you know the will of God? No matter where you are, no matter what's happened, our role is to try to do whatever we can in the midst of that. They're throwing stuff overboard. They're undergirding the ship. They're trying to lighten it, lighten it so it can rise so it won't catch on the sandbars. They're trying to do everything that they know how to do in their human wisdom. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with human wisdom. Unless it's antithetical to the scripture, of course. And now they go, in verse 21, and they have a long abstinence from food. And the sun hasn't shown, the stars hasn't shown for many, many days. I mean, this is a dark dark storm that they're in are you in a dark storm in your life if you're not you haven't lived long enough you will be in one at some point and he says men you should have listened to me we should not have sailed from crete and incurred this disaster and loss and now i urge you to take heart 
for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. See the difference? Before he said, we're going to lose life, because he was speaking from a human experiential position. But now he's saying, no. Why? Because verse 24, there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God, I, I believe God that it will be just as it was told. However, we are going to run aground. And we're going to leave it there. We'll pick it up next week. But here's where we need to understand. That God does speak, sometimes even in dreams and visions. And God speaks through godly people. Are we attuned? Are we listening? Are we in relationship with Jesus? I'll end with this last little thing. I, I was in Scotland in the Highlands, and the sheep are everywhere. And I was in Nova Scotia, New Scotland, the same thing. And in both places, I asked the shepherds, why is it that the sheep run away from me, but they'll come to you? And they both said, they know the master's voice. Do we know the voice of our master? If that angel appeared to us, would we know it? And would we listen to it? in our darkest storms of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing your will to us. Give us the heart we need to seek after you so that we might really know your will for us in this life. We pray for Pastor Dave and Wendy and Dr. Kinzel and all who are taking part in the, leading us in this worship. We pray that you would Help them, Holy Spirit, supernaturally empower them. And also, Holy Spirit, supernaturally empower us to enter into that worship. That we might worship you and that we might be attentive to, and that we might know your voice to try to hear your will for us. We pray all these things, Lord Jesus, in your name, our Lord and Savior, the Christ. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you next week if it is the will of God.